This is an ABC podcast. Richie Ramone loves noise. He loves loud music with punk sensibilities. Off kilter records from far flung corners of the world. The sort of songs that grab you by the ears and make you say, What on earth is that? Richie's love affair with the thrill and anarchy of this sort of sound began in Thomastown, Melbourne, in the 1970s. And it's run as a thread right through his life, from his first gig at the iconic Festival Hall to his family's experience of the Westgate Bridge collapse, from a short-lived career as a prison officer to finally opening his own record store on Brunswick Street in Melbourne. Hi, Richie. Oh, g'day, Sarah. How are you? What was the first punk record you ever heard, Richie? What do you remember? <laughs> I believe it was the Sex Pistols. Start and at the top. Just, yeah, and, and that's thanks to my brother uh, and his love of The Clash and the Sex Pistols and Blondie. Uh, so that it just it just was this visceral experience of the the difference from what I was used to my parents listening to with Dad listening to the um, the Chain Gang. What's the Chain Gang? Uh, it was basically all these builders' labour federation type characters um, spruiking about the construction industry on <laughs> on radio in the morning, early in the morning. So it's not a band, the Chain Gang. It's not a musical <laughs> no. genre. It's builders talking about the construction industry. <laughs> exactly. My dad being a scaffolder rigger, that was uh, you know that was that was what he listened to when he wasn't listening to the races. Oh yeah, you know, that came later in the uh, later in the day, and with Mum it was Neil Diamond and Boney M, and so it just it just was this explosion of what is this? It's... And how old would you have been, Richie, when you first heard the Sex Pistols? Uh, eight, and I had no inkling of the you know the the the. Everything else around that surrounding the Sex Pistols at the time, I had no idea about all the whole "God Save the Queen" furor and things like that. It it was just this blast of oh, just it just appealed so much. I actually some many years later, so it was probably in about two thousand and four or two thousand and five. I was on this website and the people were asking people to publish their top one hundred albums, and I remember. Um, I, I, it's, I love a list and I, I remember contributing and, and the crap that I copped from friends when I'd had the Sex Pistols in the top ten, they're like, really? You rate this? I'm like, it, it had such an impact on me as a kid. It has to be in my top 100. Maybe it was in the top 20. I might have had it in like 11 or 12 or something. But the crap I copped from friends... They're just like, they just, it just instantly, they just would not even look at the rest of the list, the other <laughs> 99. So you had this moment of hearing this LP at home and, and just your, your brain exploding. When did you first yep. get to a gig which really grabbed you by the collar? How old were you for that? I was 11, almost, tw- I was a few months shy of 12. Um, it was February 1981 uh, at Festival Hall to see Devo. Pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. How did you get there as a as an eleven year old? Um, with my brother and his mates. I mean, what legends were they to take the eleven year old along? <laughs> one of them drove. It wasn't my brother. It would have been one of the other guys, like Wayne Putland or, or Duncan Morrison, or it would have been one of those guys. It was it was a carload of of seventeen and eighteen year olds, and <laughs> me, the eleven year old. <laughs> Devo always Devo. have such a great orchestrated look. What were they wearing that night? Do you remember? Oh, of course they were wearing their power domes. They were wearing their jumpsuit outfits, and just the entire show was preceded by this video that this like movie esque type lead in with video clips, and it just it was so theatrical as well. Like they, I remember them. You know, it's weird that I remember this, I know, but, you know, I remember them mimicking sex acts with dummies and things like that. It was so, so theatrical. And what about the whole atmosphere of being there with your brother and his mates? Was that part of it, feeling like you're in this tribe of of older kids? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I remember my brother and his mates all smoking cigarettes and being told off and told to put them out because you weren't supposed to smoke uh, I think you could smoke probably on the stands, in the seated stands, but not on the general admission floor. 
but yeah, definitely, you're you're right in that feeling like this this tribe that you've been accepted into, and then afterwards, I remember drinking um, long necks of beer at the car before we headed off back to Thomastown. <laughs> How was school the next day for you then? Mum let me pull a sickie. Mum did not make me go to school the next day. She was an absolute legend. No wonder this stands out as one of the highlights of your youth. It's, st- it's still top three gigs top, of all time. Top three, really? Well, tell me um, tell me about another one. Uh, a band called Big Black, um, May 20th or about then. Oh, no, it was the day I got my driver's licence in uh, 1987 at the Prince of Wales in St Kilda. And it was just this wall of solid noise it was like you could feel it it was like you could touch the 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 sound that was these three guys were blasting just they had these guitars that were strapped around their waist rather than on on straps slung over their shoulders and they used these unusual metal picks to pluck the strings that created the strangest sound and I, I was a fan of Big Black from about the age of 14 when a, a, an absolute legend, Steve Pig Morgan uh, from Missing Link Records, uh, put me onto Big Black and um, he, he's, yeah, he was fully responsible for that. So he was the one that told me Big Black were coming to Australia and I've got to see them. And it was just incredible. You say it was the day that you got your driver's licence. So did you drive yourself to that gig? I did. I did. I took my friend Michelle and I and I... Um, managed to crash my car leaving the car park. No. By, um, yeah, yeah, my brain was just not functioning. I I was floored by that show. It was so impressive. Just I'd parked beside a pillar and I had my, I just put my wheel on full lock and reversed and bang into the pillar and put this big V in the panel of the front driver's side panel. As a, as a young punk, Richie, did you stand out in Thomastown? Uh, I didn't have a mohawk. I never was that kind of punk with the mohawk. I, I was also going bald by the time I was 17 or 18, so the mohawk was out of the question. <laughs> um, so I, I, don't, I don't think I would have stood out because, you know, I... I well, what, kind I of, what kind of area was it I, back then when you were growing up? What do you remember? As Thomastown, we used to describe it like you, you know you're in Thomastown when you've, um, you've just gone over, this, over the hill from from Keon Park uh, along Mahoney's Road and you see the giant fluffy dice um, uh, as the landmark. That's when you know that you're in, you're in Thomastown or the moment you see teenagers wearing moccasins around on the streets. That's, uh, that was basically Thomastown. It was home of the Tomo Sharps. What's a Tomo Sharp? So the Sharpie gangs that, uh, that, you know, they were just local thugs. I got beaten up by one of them one day. What did they look like, Richie? Um, sort of really short uh, hair on top and mulleted at the back. Yeah, you know, the ciggies under the ciggies under the t-shirt or the or the uh, the blue singlet, jeans and runners and and barely any teeth in their in their mouth. What shadow you'll get beaten up again if you say things like that? <laughs> were you were you a kid who liked to get into fights or was that sort of stuff something you tried to avoid? Uh no, I didn't like to get into fights. Um, I, I, I'm very much a pacifist and um, occasionally they found me, but I, I never went looking for them. You had a, an older brother, this older brother who first introduced you to, to the Sex Pistols. What was his room like at home? How did it look? The most memorable thing about his room was this pull-down blind in which he'd um, very meticulously, he'd found some um, silver duct tape and he with a scalpel. I don't know where he got the scalpel from. He very meticulously outlined and, and carved out all these logos of bands that were at the, you know, so he stuck the duct tape on the blind and then careful, being careful to not go through the blind, carved out Blondie and The Clash and The Sex Pistols and ACDC <laughs> and I'm trying to think of some of the other ones. That and is it was... amazing commitment to home merch. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, because these days somebody would just would get on an internet website and, yeah, yeah, and upload a, a logo and they'd have it two days later. And 
it was pretty impressive to, to put that effort in. Um, Did you have but, much patience or interest in sort of, you know, music that was on the charts in the late 70s? Like, I don't know, who would that have been? Like Men at Work yeah, or no? Or yeah, like, like uh, Cold Chisel or... Or who were the I've guys in Tartan? Inter- <laughs> The Bay City yeah. Rollers. Like, was that all happening? What no, did you think I despised, about pop? I, I despised it. I just had this hatred of it. I, I, I still have a dislike of <laughs> commercial music and mainstream and mainstream, the mainstream. I just still just can't, I, I, I can't stand it. I really struggle at weddings. I really, really struggle at weddings. <laughs> if I hear you're the voice again at a wedding, oh. You won't be held responsible for your own actions. <laughs> for my actions, no. What did you do after leaving school? Uh, I got an apprenticeship as an electrician. There was an old family friend that lived in the, the same court that we lived in and uh, uh, he always said uh, he had this job. Like, he told me, like, at age eight or nine, he told my mum and me and just if, if you ever want to be an electrician, just... And that's how easy it was. And I was like, okay, yeah, I've got a job. So what, how old so are you, So I got out of school as soon as or... I could, 15. Yeah, 15. And what kind of apprentice so, were you? Uh, I was really bad. I, I, I wasn't helped by, it wasn't helped, I was stationed at the Ford uh, Ford Motor Factory and I would spend my days, I'm, I, I, I kid you not, I would spend my days painting steel conduit. All the electrical work at the Ford Motor Factory had to be housed in steel conduit, not not the not the plastic stuff that you, or the PVC stuff that you see regularly. This is steel because because of, of the I guess because of the nature of the factory, and and it all had to be painted. It had to be orange, so the the steel conduit doesn't turn up orange. It has to be painted orange. That was my job. I did that for like a year and a half. I was so bad, but when it came to the schooling. So you had to go to trade school one day a week. I was very, very good at the um, the written side of it. Like I got top marks always for, for all that because maths was always my best subject at school and there was lots of maximum demand and things like things like that. But, um, but I, I, yeah, I hated being an electrician. And I didn't how... like the early mornings either because I was still going to all these shows. I was going to all these gigs many nights a week. So you weren't a fan of of the work or of the early mornings. How did a a trip to the UK rescue you from your life as an apprentice? Well, I finished the I finished the four year apprenticeship, and then a few months later, my uh, next door neighbours, the Morrisons, uh, which I'd known all my life, we they were also uh, English immigrants. Um, and we'd grown up together, so they were like, "Richie, we're going to the UK. Why don't you come with us?" And I, I thought about it, and then eventually I checked my bank balance, and I because I never ever went to the bank, so the, I got paid in cash by the electrical company, and I checked my bank balance, and I had twelve thousand dollars in the bank. What? How yeah, did that happen? At age nineteen in nineteen eighty nine, and I remember, I vividly remember thinking. I could buy a house next year if I keep working as an electrician and this money just keeps getting put in there and I'm still buying records and I'm still enjoying myself and my bank balance just keeps going up. Because it was 180 I remember there was $180 a week was going into the bank account. What, just, just automatically? Just, you weren't responsible automatically, for it? Automatically, yeah. It no, I got the rest in. in cash. And I never, ever, ever went to the bank. And that's why when they asked if I want to come with them on this holiday, I had no idea what I had in the bank account. And so I checked it and I made this decision. I was like, oh, hang on, the ashes are on as well. I'm like, yep, yeah, I'm going. <laughs> I love my cricket. Like, so yeah, this I'm was your go sliding the... doors moment where either you could be landed gentry now, I could be speaking to yep. Richie Ramone, owner of multiple <laughs> properties and investment yep. units yep. and Oceanside Villas, or the guy who went to the ashes in 1989. <laughs> Uh, it was a very memorable experience, the Ashes in 1989. Nobody gave the Australians any hope. It was it was an experience even just getting tickets. Imagine pre-internet, like trying to get tickets from Melbourne to, to Lords and Leeds and Old Trafford and... Like, oh, my God, imagine that. But you managed and it. it was, and it was really, well, it was such a spur-of-the-moment decision that I had to actually organise for the tickets to not be sent to Australia. The tickets had to be held at the first test 
at the grounds at the first test, which was in Leeds. I forget what they call the Leeds Oval, but anyway. Um, I got there the day of the first test, the day, the first day of the first test starting. It was a mad rush to like the game's already on, and I'm at the I'm at the ground wanting to get in to get a beer and sit down and watch the cricket. I missed about the first session. I remember I, I, I remember I was in my seat by about one p.m. And what happened for you for work when you made it back to Australia after the Great Ashes adventure? <laughs> I had the strangest experience at the Manchester. Uh, ground, which I think was the four, it was the fourth test at Old Trafford, um, in the merch stand, you know, looking at all the, the the different merch you can buy, and I bump into one of the Sparkies that I've worked with on the job sites, and Dave's like, "G'day!" Back then I was Richard. G'day, Richard, and um, like, Dave, how's it going? And, and and you know, he's there just for one day's one day of the cricket, and he's like. What, what are you going to do when you get back? And I was like, I don't know. I haven't worked that out. And he says, well, if you want your job back at ODG, just just give me a call because I'm a supervisor now. I can make that happen. So I did. I, I called Dave when I got back and I got my job back with the, the company that I did my apprenticeship with. Were you any better as an electrician this time round? No, I was so bad. I'm, I can only imagine that Dave... That Dave really liked me as as a person because he can't have been judging me on my electrical work because it was terrible. I mean, yeah, it was nothing you know, nothing that was going to burn places down or anything. I just had to ask a lot of questions about how do you do this and how do you do that because I'd spent my whole time painting. I just had no idea. How did things um, change for your work woes when you were twenty one? Uh, so as I approached my twenty uh, first birthday. Uh, and was having a rather large gathering, a, a, a massive, massive party. The, the the company, the electrical company, was downsizing, and so because I'd just been re-employed by them, they it was easy for them to dispose of me. Pro- I, as I said, it was probably a relief for them to get rid of the worst electrician on their books. So I I was at a bit of a loss as to what to do, and um, Minotaur Books in the in the city had had long been a place that I'd frequented since 1977. I'd been going to this establishment. So for 13 years, I'd been going to Minotaur Books and they knew me. And it was actually sometime earlier, whilst I was still an electrician, they had asked if if I would consider working for them. So they were my backup plan. As far as once I lost my job at, as a Sparky, I just went, I, I wandered into Minotaur. I was like, is there any jobs going? And they employed me. And what kind of place was Minotaur Books? What did they sell? It's a popular culture store. All the comics, were, so it was where I'd been going to get my comics from 1977 and, and you know, Doctor Who and Star Trek and books and movie memorabilia and toys and all that sort of stuff. So that was probably a, a better fit than, than being an electrician. <laughs> what about the music business, Richie? How did you first get into, into that? Well, when I when I got the ask from Minotaur, um, very un- unceremoniously, I might add too. From there, I so I did. I was actually doing the mail order role at at Minotaur, so dealing with um, mostly at that point, it was mostly within Australia. People uh, generally, it wasn't overseas orders, but I was sh- shipping out a lot of orders around Australia. Uh, again, pre-internet, all via catalogues and and people uh, standing orders for for particular comics, just charging to their credit card and stuff. So when I got removed from Minotaur, I went to my favourite record store, or GoGo Records. So what what kind of place was that? That's your first record store to work in. What did you? What was the best bit about working there? Ah. Uh, Oh God! If he hears this, he's just going to get a big head. But Bruce, like w- working for for Bruce, I, I I'd got to know Bruce over the years. I'd been going to Orgogo, so I started going to Orgogo in about 1983, 1984, and Bruce was one of the owners. and And Bruce goes back to the days of the seventies and the early days of Australian punk rock and the Saints and the Radio Birdman and psychosurgeons and I could reel off a whole bunch of bands you might never have heard of. <laughs> um, but yeah, he was there at the at the beginning of the Australian punk rock explosion. And so then he, he created uh, Orgogo Records and as a importing all these weird and great punk rock records 
uh, from overseas and, and selling and distributing them across uh, Australia. And what kind of boss was Bruce? Loose. And he was, te- <laughs> he was terrible. I, yeah, he was nasty and he was just... I, I, I can say this, Bruce and I are still great friends and we speak most days, but... But he would leave rude, nasty notes on my desk. I, I got the job as the mail order person when I when I applied. There were seventy four other applicants, and uh, they said I was the only applicant that had any mail order experience. Plus, they knew what they were getting. So I had my own little desk in this uh, sectioned off area upstairs, and and so off. So many times I came to work, and there was a note. And he's, his handwriting is actually like a doctor's, so you can imagine trying to decipher what it actually says. But on the back, of, you know, whatever paper was lying around, he would just close your effing, close your effing window or I'll call you at home and abuse you, exclamation. It's imagine if an employer <laughs> did that today. That is not HR protocol. <laughs> That's a go-go protocol. Well, out of this, you eventually took a job driving around musical superstars who were really very unpunk, but were they fun? (laughs) (laughs) Mm, Fun. Spandau Ballet were fun. They They were a lot of fun. Um, oh, uh, like, yeah, some of them embrace you and some of them, uh, uh, you know, you, you get you, the directive is you're not to speak to the artists unless you're spoken to, unless unless they are to actively, you know, engage with you. And I was very good at that. Um, I was very... I, really? I liked, you'd sit And you weren't to chew gum either. You don't chew gum. That was, I remember you're not supposed to chew chewing gum. <laughs> it was great in that, like, you didn't... They didn't expect you to open doors for them or... Or, or things like that, but um, you had to be quiet yeah. and not chew gum. Quiet and not chew gum. And Probably who, not fart either, who, but they, they never actually told you that. I think but. that's just a given in human <laughs> company, personally. But you know, I've never driven superstars around. So, what, what, who were the who were the ones that you enjoyed driving? Beyonce was lovely. She was really, really sweet. Um, I hope uh, you didn't fart around Beyonce, Richie. I did not. I did not. There might have been a little bit of drool that... Um, <laughs> You're um, only human. Esca- ...escaped, <laughs> especially when, and I'm, I, I hope I can say this, it's, it's, it's just what happened in the back of the van. She was talking to her uh, costume, her costume designer that was sharing the ride with us, and he was really gleefully expressing um, this leg rub that he'd given a person from the crew and Beyonce just saying, oh, oh, could I have one too? And now you're getting paid to... I think I had to adjust my rear vision mirror um, so that I couldn't see. Um, I don't want to have an accident with Beyonce in the car. <laughs> you picked up Rihanna on a, on a big day in, in history. When was that? Oh, what? and it was a very, very special, momentous day in history because it was the here in Australia. It was the the it was kind of early afternoon that it, the announcement came through that Barack Obama had won the the presidential election for the first time, the the first win. So I was picking up Rihanna and her crew from the Grand Hyatt in uh, Collins Street, and. You know, and and they're all uh, she she and her whole whole crew are African American descent, and and I I will never ever forget them coming down this sort of marbled walkway. It's like an arcade sort of type entrance to. There's two entrances either side of the uh, on the, on either street, but this this alleyway marbled laneway type exit or entrance from the hotel, and. The announcement had just come through, it, 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 like literally in the last 30 minutes. And they came down that walkway just hooting and hollering <laughs> and dancing and they were like, whoa, and they got in the car on cloud nine. And it was so, I was so fortunate to be there at that moment Um I, I, I'm sitting here with the hairs are standing up on my arms just thinking about that moment. I hope you drove them there safely and with great focus then. <laughs> As they got in the car, the, the large security guy, Pat, jumped in the front seat. He's like, hey, Richie, it's a wonderful day. I'm like, Pat, that is, it is a momentous day. It is so incredible. I'm so happy 
for all of you guys. It's just, this is incredible. What an incredible result. Congratulations. And we took off to get, it was a very short drive to go to the tennis centre and I missed the turn into the <laughs> tennis centre. I missed the turn. And it's one of the things you just get, don't do it. Like the drivers, when you know, the, as one of the newer drivers, you get told by the older guys that have been doing it for years, whatever you do, don't have to do a U-turn. The moment you have to do a U-turn, the artist knows you've missed your turn. <laughs> you've missed your turn off. And Pat in the front, he's like, hey, Richie, you missed your turn. I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. It's all right, brother. It's all good. It we was, don't it was, care. It was <laughs> part of the payoff of Obama's election was them not <laughs> leaping down your throat for that. Exactly. No, they did not care, Rihanna. Didn't care. Nothing could surly yeah. this great moment. Podcast. Broadcast. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. So, Richie, you grew up in Thomastown in Melbourne, but your parents are originally from Glasgow. What brought them to Australia? Oh, they they won what was called the Pools um, in 1966. They won the Pools, which, you know, I think they won not the equivalent of, like, winning a million dollars, but they won a substantial amount of money. Yeah. They decided with to, that to come out to, to emigrate. Yeah, to emigrate to Australia. Um I wasn't born at that point, so they picked up Jack and came here on the boat. It took her a long, long time. I believe my mum was seasick the whole time. <laughs> um, I seem to recall that from the younger days. I seem to remember that getting mentioned. And Thomastown was where we landed. The, there was already a lot of um, uh, my dad's side of the family had moved out here as well. And most of, most of my mum's side of the family stayed in Scotland, in Glasgow, but dad's Glasgow, Glaswegian family, most of his siblings were had moved or moved out to out to Thomastown and Laylor and Epping as well. We basically were all in the same, over the same side of the north of Melbourne. You were only in your 20s when both your mum and dad passed away. When you lose your Correct. parents at that point, does it feel like there's some kind of unfinished business there in in terms of your relationship with them? Yeah, it's it's there's so it's so often that I you know I I, I think oh if, if only I could ask mum or dad to confirm this or confirm that or ask about more about Glasgow and their upbringing in Glasgow and. Um, yeah, you know, it's it, it's 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 extremely tough to, you know, I think I, I, 20, I was nearly, nearly 24 uh, when mum passed and I was 26 when dad passed. Tell me a bit about your, about your dad, Richie. What had happened to him at work one day? Well, so as I mentioned earlier, dad was a scaffolder rigger and um, working on the various sites around Melbourne, but uh, the... One of the big jobs that he found himself on was the construction of the Westgate Bridge. And uh, and he was at work that day, October 15, 1970, when uh, the bridge collapsed. Um, a day in which 35 men died on that building site when, the, when a span collapsed. Uh, and it was... It was like it was. It was basically for my father. He knew about twenty-eight of those thirty-five guys. It was like losing twenty-eight mates at once. Uh, the impact on our family can't be overstated. Uh, as far as that 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 bridge collapsing, and the, the impact and the, the future uh, repercussions on our family were immense. What do you mean, Richie? What kind of impact did it have? Well, so Mum always. Mum, I, I vividly remember Mum always saying through my um, through the, the the later years after that after the bridge that your father only ever drank socially, but it, it turned my father into an alcoholic. There was 
it just it was the pub every day. One or two of the other survivors that lived over our way as well. Um, they all died very, very young. I remember growing up, just the number of times my father telling me of this bloke or this bloke who've had a heart attack or they've they've passed, they've died, they've died suddenly, you know. And then my father as well in his mid fifties. Um, they all died very, very young. And as I said, and and they all those that those that didn't die really, really young, and even those that were, they were all alcoholics. It, it turned them all into alcoholics. Somewhere in my belongings, I have a telegram that was uh, sent to my father the evening of the of, of the accident, requiring him at work the next day. There was no mm. trauma counselling. There was no nothing. It was you are back at work the next day. I guess as a as a young kid, as a teenager, you probably wouldn't have appreciated that. As an adult, you can see your dad with the the eyes of compassion. Yes, but I, I guess can. As the son, that would have been that wouldn't have been easy to see. Yeah, I. I it's only later in life that I have a better appreciation of that. I I needed to show more compassion and and be more understanding of what my dad had experienced. Uh, and sadly, I I didn't have that as a as a young kid and a teenager, I just didn't. I just didn't have that that knowledge, and so it's it's one of my great regrets that I needed to. Because my father and I struggled to sort of basically struggled to stay in the same room as each other. Often, unless the cricket was on, we could actually we could actually sit and we could sit and watch a whole day's cricket t- together, and barely say a word to each other. But um, yeah, I just I just wish I had have had. Uh, a, yeah, had a better understanding of, of the impact of that bridge on, on on his mental health. It was 11, I think you said, that you went off to your first gig. How young do you remember being given free range around the city? What kind of age were you heading off on, on solo adventures? I was eight. Uh, it was 1977 and I discovered a love of comics and then there was, I've mentioned Minotaur Books, and they they had this tiny, tiny brick and mortar store in Tattersall's Lane. Off, uh, it's just the tiniest, tiniest storefront. And I just, I would depart from Thomastown and walk the the twenty minute walk to the train station, and jump on a train and head the forty minute journey into the city, and and then I would just have adventures in the city. Uh, I'd, I, mum would give me 20 bucks. That's and a lot that got back me my, then. <laughs> that's a lot of money, right? 1977, 20 you bucks. You lord. <laughs> I played pinballs when I wasn't at the, I went, I, there was the amusement parlours. Nothing bad ever happened to you on those forays into the big smoke? Oh, I wouldn't say bad. I, I, I definitely saw some things and I, yeah, I met strange individuals. I met. You know, I met homeless people. I met um, I met artist types and and buskers and and I just I just talked to people and I just met so many strange and individuals and unusual people and. So was your mum sort of waiting by the door, anxious about her little eight year old coming back home safely? <laughs> Sometimes I would call from sometimes I would call from Thomastown Station and she would come and collect me. Or often I just walked again the the twenty minute walk home. And yeah, there was no I never I, I never even had to ring like from the city. I never actually had to ring and say yeah it's two o'clock I'm fine. It was just <laughs> I'd leave home at ten a.m. and I'd come home at about seven or seven thirty or eight o'clock at night. Well, this kind of independence seemed to go into the stratosphere when you were 13, when you went back to Scotland on your own. Uh, How did that happen? Uh, I mean, the family, um, mum and dad wanted me to go and see the family and I I desperately, I hated school. I really, really hated school and and the thought. And I think my brother was uh, critical to the, you know, maybe my brother really disliked me and maybe my parents disliked me and they just were like, let's just send him to Scotland (laughs) on his own. At 13. What do you remember um, about the flight, Richie? All sorts of things happened on that flight. I I couldn't eat. I wouldn't eat the food. Uh, I was a really... I've always said I'm a really fussy eater, but I'm really easy to please. Like, I'll have 
cheese on toast for dinner. I'm happy with that. I'm really happy with that. I'm happy with beans on toast for dinner. I'm really easy to please, but I am fussy. But, yeah, I just couldn't eat the food. And I remember I was – I'd met this elderly couple. The the man was in a wheelchair and they would just – pass on their fruit. To me, I was happy to eat all the fruit that came with all the, with, with each, you know, you, you always got like a little apple or something or an orange in your, in your food platter, but I wouldn't eat any of the rest. And so they would just pass on their fruit to me. And at the time, my brother was, my brother would have just started as an air traffic controller. And I believe he spoke to the pilot and I actually got a tap on the shoulder from one of the crew saying, would you like to see the cockpit? And I was like, yeah. 13, I get to go, as long as it's not a flying high moment and I have to sit on the captain's (laughs) lap or anything. Um, So, yeah, I got taken up to the cockpit and shown various devices and things and it was fantastic because that just does not happen these days. You survived the flight and you got to Glasgow and then did you have to go to school? I did. I I didn't initially. Initially, so my mum was going to be turning up some months after me, like two months after me. And so initially I was just lazing about, enjoying myself, just exploring Glasgow. So initially I was not going to school and then eventually one of the relatives was like, Richie, you, you, you've got to start going to school. I think I'd been there for about six weeks at this point. They're like, you need to go to school. Your mum's going to kill us if you're not at school when she arrives. So... I started going to school with, I was staying at my uh, cousin Carol and her husband Steph's, I was staying at their place and the people, the kids downstairs were actually going to this school called Allen Glen's and when the other relatives were like, found out, no, he's not going to Allen Glen's, I'm like, that's the worst school in Glasgow, like really? (laughs) They're like, oh, there's no worse. (laughs) Awesome. So they sent me to the worst school in Glasgow. And, and was, what was that like? What did you see in the playground of Alan oh, Glen? Just, it was unruly. It was, there was fights everywhere. There was a kid that used to get around with glue up his sleeve. He was high on glue all day. It was just, I was this freak from Australia. They've never met an Australian. They haven't heard an Australian accent and so I just had this troop of people, of kids, following me everywhere I went. It's like there was always 20 and 25 and 30 kids just, like, alongside me and following me. I made the mistake one day of uh, walking down this walkway where these kids were up on the... It was a walkway in which it got lower and lower and lower, and so the walls either side of it had these steel railings. And I didn't realise that if you had... If there was kids up there on the ledge but alongside the steel railing, don't walk don't walk under them because they will attack you. And I did and they attacked me and they got attacked by all the kids that were behind me. Like a brawl. I didn't have to do anything. A brawl over Richie. <laughs> it was nuts. It was, it was the worst schooling. It doesn't exist anymore. It hasn't existed for a long, long time. It got ripped down. So did that did that experience in Glasgow's roughest school serve you well, do you think, later in life when you found yourself working as a prison officer? I think it might have. I think it might have. I hadn't actually put that two and two together, but thank you. That's probably Tell me about that about that role and, and what kind of fit it, it was for you. As a guy who sounds like from a fairly early age was pretty anti-authoritarian, how did you go being the, the an actor or the holder of authority in a prison? Uh, that sat uncomfortably with me and I, I was different to the other officers. I, I was clearly different to them. I, I was somebody that could actually have a conversation with the prisoners and, and I genuinely was interested in their well-being and, you know, how they ended up where they've ended up and um, and I certainly wasn't ever power-tripping or I wasn't interested in breaking their balls. And I remember one of my very early days, I remember I got along really well with Bill. He was a smart, smart character. He was in on, it was some sort of like, uh, you know, money laundering, fraudulent, you know, transaction type thing. He was clearly smart, and I remember he he'd seen my my tattooed arm, 
and he just started singing um, a Pink Floyd song from Pink Floyd's debut album, which is an amazing album, and he just started singing the lyrics to it. And I just looked at him and I was like, okay, yeah, you're, you're all right. <laughs> um, and, and him and I got along as well as a, a prisoner and an officer are allowed to get along. What did you used to do when the mail came in, Richie? Uh, I, so I very quickly cottoned onto the lunch relief role at the prison, and that was a, a role that suited my certainly suited my night my night owl hours. Uh, in that, like I started at ten a.m., ten thirty, or eleven a.m., and I, I would like to just have a little bit of fun in with the mail with the the prisoners, and so you basically just you've got it all sorted for that unit, and you're just calling out surnames. You just you just have to have a loud, you know, uh, you have to be able to enunciate to the back row. So that's why I'm not shy about I get on public transport or something and people need to move <laughs> down the front. I'm, I'm that person. Um, I, you know, I'd get rid of the ones that were just letters and stuff for people, for, for the prisoners. But you'd also be bringing up the sheriff's fines for the prisoners and I'd love nothing more than... Just, I'd leave all the sheriff's fines for the end, and uh, I'd call out those guys' names, and they'd all. I'd wait until they're all gathered in a group, and I'd, as I handed out their sheriff's fines, I'd be like, "So, Jones, got your sheriff's fines here? It's a few pages. How much? How much do you reckon you owe? Oh, I don't know, boss. I got no idea. Oh. I'm like, come on, have a guess. I don't, know, I don't know, three and a half grand. I'd be like, oh no, you'd be much better than that. It's six grand. <laughs> <laughs> and then they'd walk off and have a look at all these various fines that are on these pages because it's all outlined. It's all like, you know, not affixing a trailer properly or not having paid your public transport fines or your speeding fines or your red light camera fines. But I'd love, um, you know, <laughs> I'd love when I get to the last one and, you know, Smith, yeah, here's your fines. Oh, okay. How much do you reckon you got? I don't know, 15 grand? Oh, no, you're today's winner, 22 grand. And he'd just go bouncing off down the stairs, go, woohoo, I win today. It's like perverse bingo. <laughs> it was just some fun, some lightheartedness in the prison. You know, there's not a lot, uh, there's not a lot of joy in their days. You know, it's, it was just a little, yeah, a little bit of lightheartedness. And it just, it, it, it eased the boredom for me. <laughs> What was the the close call you had with a serial killer? Oh yes, in one of the protection units. Uh, I, I won't mention the name, but he's a he, he'll never be released. He's one of the never to be released individuals. He had a job as a billet in a so a working prisoner is referred to as a billet, and um, so he had a job as a billet in the unit he was in, and one of the billet's jobs is to clean the officers' toilet daily. And the officer's toilet door is locked from the outside. It's not locked from the inside. So you don't need your keys to get out. But I used to be the person that would let him into the toilet uh, most days. I'd, I'd unlock the toilet for him to give it a clean. It came about after I'd left that they discovered... He actually had a computer in his cell uh, and they actually discovered that he was hatching a plan to... Once the toilet door was unlocked, he was hatching a plan to have it so that the door was locked from the inside and have pushed an officer in there with him and was going to kill the officer. So that's, that's about as close as I reckon I've come to being killed by a serial killer. It's, uh, it could have been me. I, I, I like to think that he, he's a coward by, you know, the nature of the, his crimes and... The people he killed, he he has uh, he's been portrayed in television shows and stuff like that, which I've watched. And in the television shows I've seen him portrayed in, I've gone, I've looked. He's like this hard guy, this hard man. I'm like, no, he's not. He's a he's he's a coward. Um, and so yeah, but he probably would have maybe tried it on on one of the more slighter officers. How long did you last in this job, Richie? Uh, after two years, I hated it and I wanted out. But I was in this period. I found that I never. I just was. I've never. My friends around me were my brother, and they're on their third bouts of long service leave. And I'm like, I've never ever had long service leave. So I hung in it for seven years. I found <laughs> that you get songs long service leave after on a pro rata pro rata basis at seven years. And I um. So I hung in there to that point. I um. 
I got the long service. I had the long service leave approved. In the meantime, I'd actually opened up my own record store and I was going in. So I was working two day jobs, working the record store, and and so the hours at all it was I was pulling lots of sickies um, at the <laughs> at the at the prison to in order to open up my record store, having not told a single person at the prison that this is what I'm doing. I just entirely kept that to myself, and I applied for the long service leave, got the long service leave signed off by the general manager, um, and I never went back. Had that always been a dream, Richie? Ever since you were, you know, a kid into records, that one day you'd be master of your own record store domain. I, I wouldn't say it's always been a dream. I mean, I, I did that. I worked in a record store when I was younger, and and I and I loved it. And I got that, you know, I got that out of my system at that point because it, it is a passion for many, and it really is for for many many people. They you know, have this dream of working in a record store, and I guess I did that. It didn't come until how much I was hating being a prison officer and that I realised how cool it would be to have my own record store. And I was, I thought with my strange, weird tastes, I thought there's got to be, there's got to be a bunch of other weirdos out there like me that aren't interested in the mainstream or what radio is peddling this week or it's, it, there's got, and there was no, you know, podcasts weren't a thing. And it was just like, there's, but- I just thought there's, there's got to be, there's, there's got to be an audience out there for, for people that are interested in, in the in the stuff I'm I'm into, but this was also a time, I guess, when you know most people would have thought that records, LPs, record shops are just this dying breed on their way to <laughs> extinction. Like technology seemed to be heading in the opposite direction. Did you always have faith that there'd be people like you who wanted wanted an LP? <laughs> I've had faith ever since there was the CD revolution. I never got sucked into the CD revolution in the late 80s. Um, I, the record stores have always been there. I think they will always be around, especially in Melbourne. I mean, I, I, my understanding is there's more record stores in Melbourne per capita than anywhere else in the world. So... Uh, you know, what I came up with had to be something that differentiated my store from, from others. And that was your weird taste, was it? Is that your <laughs> yeah, mark exactly. of differentiation? <laughs> so did things take off straight away? Uh, I wouldn't say take off. I think it was I, – I opened early December 2015 and I I was basically in a – it was – the equivalent of opening up a record store in a flat that was behind this steel garage, steel roller door. So there was no signage. No, it was really just a word of mouth destination uh, in the back streets of Fitzroy. It was down this little weird shaped street. It's like you look down the street and you think you're in Prague or something like that. It's amazing. It's an amazing little street. People did enjoy coming in and being introduced to to things they weren't otherwise familiar with that they that they'd never heard of and I, I i have this passion for for that that's what's what's most interesting to me is what else is out there and i, I was right I, I it's not i guess it's nice to know once when you are right but i was right there is a lot of people out there that they want to discover the other music that they're not familiar with. When I used to go into record stores as a teenager, that was the only place you could hear that music or get that music. And, of course, now there's everything available all the time, often for free. How do you get someone to commit to actually purchasing an an LP and taking it physically out of your store? It's tough. I think you need to be a good salesperson to do it. I guess, I guess you know. Thankfully, there's still enough people out there that they want to hold a physical product. They want they want to they want to get that warmth of the the record on their turntable rather than just listening to a digitised version of that if it's actually available on one of the streaming platforms. I mean, I'm a big advocate for artists not having their music up on streaming. I think it's um, I think in the long run it's going to be uh, detrimental to to the quality of music that that's available but it's it's really great if i can tell you uh, if i can tell you a little story that happened recently in the there's a, there's a series of records called back from the grave the first one came out in 1983 there's 10 of them in total i i love playing the back from the graves in the store and i was playing i was playing volume 1 recently and there was two young people in the store bopping around they're loving what they're hearing and she comes up to the counter. She's like, what's this you're playing? I love it. I'm like, I said, I can see that. She's like, oh, it's so good. And I point to my screen, which is displaying what I'm currently playing. 
And she goes to pull out her mobile phone from her bag. And I went, uh-uh. She's like, what? I'm like, no, no, don't bother. She's like, oh, it's not streaming? I'm like, it's not streaming. And it never will be. Oh. I said, there's a section right behind you, the <laughs> compilation section. There's a copy of it right there behind you. I tell them the story of how the Back from the Graves come about, which is a fascinating, amazing story for not, for the early 80s, what this guy, what this man did to, to document 1960s US garage punk, the beginnings of garage, of, of punk rock, basically, what, what he did to document it pre-internet and how he went about it. So I tell them the story of how that came about. So she's now heard about eight songs. She just turns around and she went and grabbed volume one from the racks and paid the $35 (laughs) for it. And he came back in two weeks later and he went straight to that same section and he grabbed volume two. And I looked at him and I said, she's enjoying it. He's like, oh, she loves it so much. And it's her birthday in about three days time. You will be the popular boyfriend. (laughs) What about your own family, Richie? Uh, are you raising the next generation of obscure <laughs> music lovers? <laughs> uh, some might be frightened to say, yes, I am. Um, I, I am the stepdad to two adorable kids, Joe and Lucinda. Uh, Joe's 11 and Lucinda's nine and a half. They're, uh, I'm married to their mum, Dee, and I'm extremely fortunate. They're all, they, they really make my world and the music in our house is it's just, there's always music and we we all love it we all have an uh, intense passion for music do your friends get a bit jealous that you can play i don't know new york dolls or whatever to your kids and they bop along and the friends have got to listen to whatever's top of the charts i think my friends and customers are astounded at um and 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 a little jealous like often i'm just saying Oh, the latest one for Joe and Lucinda's, they love Jay Retard. They're like, what? They love Jay Retard. I'm like, they love Jay Retard. I'm like, oh, my God. My kids just listen to Miley Cyrus. <laughs> um, it's it's really, really amazing. I, 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 I discover things in my collection or in the – like, I don't have – I mean, I have a lot of CDs. I only We listen to CDs in the car. And I just I just come across things and I just go, oh, my God, the kids will love this. And they see how oh, it's awesome. <laughs> Richie, it has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much and, for being my and guest. T- and to you, Sarah, thank you so much. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.